shit. We're not in a prison drama, are we? We are in a prison drama. This is the fucking Shawshank Redemption, right? But with more tunneling through shit, no fucking redemption. Right, people, nobody move, right? Nobody move. Nobody gets fucking truncheoned in the face. This is our lockdown, right? I'm Sean McDonald, you're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Gordon Smart. We discussed the concept of celebrity in modern society. Is fame illusory and hollow, or does it accurately reflect society and its interests? What are the consequences of fame, or indeed, the loss of it? As somebody who's been at the epicentre of showbiz and entertainment for the best part of 20 years, Gordon's well placed to give his thoughts on the sub... On the subject? <laughs> well, Sean Connery. Let's try that again. As somebody who's been at the epicentre of showbiz and entertainment for the best part of 20 years, Gordon's well placed to give his thoughts on the subject and he does in quite some detail. Gordon explains some of his early motivations for becoming involved in journalism, born through a fascination of big characters and personalities, and his enjoyment in promoting new and young talent across the industry. And we hear about some of the people who've left a significant impression on him, including those who've gone on to become long-lasting friends. We talk about the need to adhere to lockdown guidelines. It's difficult but it's non-negotiable to protect lives and come out of this weird scenario sooner rather than later. We all have to stay home, so don't be that fud that goes out. Everybody will hate you and they'll have every right to. Stay home, save lives. I just want to say a massive thank you to Margaret Driver, Jamie Murray and Kevin Brannigan for their support on Patreon and to all other patrons. You've helped me to produce even more episodes and I'm very grateful. If you enjoy Blethered and you want to support the show, gain access to exclusive episodes, new shows and bonus perks, then the link to the Patreon page is in the episode notes. Last word, Radio Times magazine included Blethered in their list of 22 podcasts you need to listen to is a completely independent grassroots production to be recognised alongside so many big budget, big name shows, many of which I listen to and love, is a real honour and a major buzz. Hope you enjoy the episode. Cheers. So we've got two PC shaggers reporting for duty. I should explain that. That is, in case my gran's listening, that's just a wee joke that we, we like to go with now and again. This is PC Shagger 1 and his deputy, PC Shagger 2. Gogsy, how are you, mate? You good? PC Shagger? Yes, I am. I'm good. <laughs> I, I'm all right, actually. It's really nice to see your uh, fuzzy face, your 29-year-old Glaswegian face on the other side <laughs> of the country. It's so nice. We normally we do this one on a different kind of internet chat room, eh, Sean? <laughs> I, I know, mate. I know. No t-shirts allowed. Dirty, dirty <laughs> den in the top left. Oh, it's great to see you, mate. And I'm glad to see that you've still managed to grow any facial hair in isolation. <laughs> <laughs> I've been shaving. You need to look after yourself, but it'll just come in patchy anyway, so there's no point in me even trying to let it go. I just look terrible. Hey, you're looking well. You're, you're doing well. You're sp- sporting that grizzly Adam's fuzz. Do you want to tell the people why your yeah. voice isn't it? It's usual s- slick self. Oh, it's terrible. I sound like a combination between Sean Dyche... Louis Armstrong, Joe Cocker, and well, <laughs> what I used to sound like at about eight o'clock in the morning every day for ten years. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I've got a vocal nodule, a polyp on my on my vocal cord, and about what five six weeks ago, I was taken off Radio X because it just it, it just didn't sound very nice with anybody. And 
I was finding it hard. Like you'll probably notice it through this this podcast, and hopefully it's not too annoying. So, apologies, but my breathing sounds a bit odd as well. So I went to see a professor in Edinburgh, and I saw him three years ago because I lost my voice, and I managed to fix it three years ago with a wee bit of vocal therapy, speech therapy. But because mm. uh, I've got this, I've got quite a deep voice, so when I'm in loud rooms, I find it really hard to make my voice carry when. I'm sh- I basically end up shouting all night, as you'll have heard when we've been out. And then the next day, it just it sounds grim. So I think all the radio stuff, all the talking I do during the day, it's just gradually got worse and worse. So I went to see this professor in Edinburgh to get a laryngoscopy, which for anybody who's had it will tell you it's not a very nice experience. So they put a camera down your nose and then get you to say a series of different things. And they show you as the, as it happens on a big screen. Mm-hmm. So when you go through the vowels, that's how you show the different folds, the vocal folds. And when I get to I and E, there's a, a, a fairly unpleasant lump that's stopping me make, making a clean noise with my voice. So I need to get surgery. Mm-hmm. So that was six weeks ago, five weeks ago. And then I was referred for surgery. And the surgeon said, right, let's get you you're ready to go. And I was bracing myself for this fairly dramatic point in my life, you know, because there's no guarantee it comes back. I mean, they're pretty confident and, you know, the more research I do, it sounds like it does come back. But um, mm-hmm. I was pretty worried. And then obviously the situation we're all in, all ear, nose and throat surgery was postponed. It's just too dangerous. You know, the, the, the idea of having that surgery at any time is pretty, pretty lively. But having it where you could end up with a respiratory infection or a virus like COVID, coronavirus, mm-hmm. it's not a good time. So I've just got to wait, wait it out. But the, you know, the whole point to make, though, Sean, is... It could be a lot worse, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm in the beautiful countryside with my family. I don't get to see them very often, so I'm actually enjoying being at home. And I'm, you know, I'm lucky to live in a nice house with plenty of room. And you know, I'm in the countryside, so that's been nice. But it's, I miss, I really miss work. I like what I love, what I do. Um, it's not good for extroverts being cooped up. I know I'm I'm struggling a wee bit. I've I've had ups and downs. Part of me's enjoyed just not doing anything, but then it gets to the point where I'm like, right, even just to get to the gym, don't really want to be out of the house doing anything. It's it is pish, but as you say, you don't get to spend that much time with the family. Like, what have you been up to? Just kind of family stuff, or are you driving each other mental yet? Because that's probably going to come at some stage as well. It's been great, actually. I can't complain. I mean, there was a moment in the afternoon today when I wanted to two-foot Jimmy into the neighbour's fence <laughs> to stop him asking me to play football. You know, just an injury that could put him out for a four weeks or so, you know, just so I didn't get pissed. Aye. <laughs> you know, have, you ever, have you ever heard that story, by the way, about John Hartson? No. Oh, it's amazing. John Hartson tells this incredible story. And, you know, I really shouldn't tell it because it's his after-dinner speaking thing, but I'm sure he won't mind Full credit to him. It's an amazing story. So when Big Harson signed for Arsenal, Paul Merson came across in the first training session and said, look, I've got a horse running on Thursday, so I don't want to play in the European game. Would you mind just leaving the boots in a wee bit? Just leave the studs up, put me out for a couple of weeks so I can go to the horse, <laughs> horse racing. So John Harson's like, yeah, sure, you're Paul Merson. I'll do what you want. So Merson like, gets the ball and Harson like, puts the studs down the back of his calf, like a real dig over the ball takes about a six-inch scar at the back of his leg, like a really nasty <laughs> one. <laughs> and Merson comes across and goes, that was a good effort, but you're going to have to have another shot because that's not done the business. You're going to have to put me out a bit longer than that. So the last kick of training, like Bruce Rioch was the manager at the time, or maybe it was Arsene Wenger's first week, and he said Paul Merson gets the ball last 10 seconds of training, 
And Allison <laughs> gets the nod from Merson. He's like, do it. So he like runs across the pitch, two foots him from the waist, like puts him at the advertising, <laughs> puts him at the advertising hoarding, puts Merson out for six months. Fucking six hell. Months. He gets a three-week club fine, right? It's like five grand. And Merson's like getting carried off in a stretcher. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, well, you asked me. He told me. He told me. Of, all the, uh, of all the people you can ask to leave one on you, you don't ask John Hartson. <laughs> Such a good story, isn't it? So I've been thinking about doing that to my son. He's only 10. But well, he's got, listen, he's got to learn. He's got to learn, I know. You know, all <laughs> other kids are practicing all these skills and everything. I'm like, right, Jimmy, what you do is just try and get just above the shin pads. That's where you're aiming. Aye, just 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 late enough that you can say it was a proper accident. That's where oh, the real yeah, skill lies in it. That one. <laughs> Holding the hands up, ref. I never touched them. Has uh, there's there's quite a few things I want to talk about workwise. But so you're off radio. X. See what just with regards to the voice because I'm just kind of curious. I'm quite similar. Like after a night out, I've not got a voice. I just can't speak, and I'm more husky and raspy. And it's probably just because I don't shut up. And as you say, I run about like a Tasmanian devil from table to table. Got a brain in a headlock. <laughs> I know. I'm still, I'm going to, I can't wait. Next time I'm going to finish him off and get him properly. I'll let him away. But, um, I can't wait for a night. I was talking about being in the Groucho the other day, by the way, on an interview I did in a Celtic state of mind. You should listen to that. Because I was talking about WhatsApp media, we'll come to that, and who's the who's the worst culprits for WhatsApp, and how anybody's yeah. phone will get them six months, especially especially <laughs> ours. Um, is see with the when you when you get your operation, are they basically saying it's when things get back to normal, like when when hospitals can have normal intake and and, and all that kind of thing, and then is it a kind of standard recovery period? Yeah, pretty much. I need the. I think they said three months, but. Look, if I require, I don't know if you need a ventilator in that surgery, but it's a general anaesthetic. So mm -hmm. that stuff, all that machinery and equipment has to be a priority for other people. And that makes mm -hmm. perfect sense to me. So as soon as I can get in, get a general anaesthetic, and it's, it's a really delicate, really tricky operation, I think, with lasers. So, you know, mm -hmm. the equipment, state-of-the-art stuff. But oddly, I offered to pay for it on private, uh, like pay mm -hmm. for it and get it done privately. But... The equipment's only on the NHS, which is mind-blowing and such a good thing to hear. So, yeah, yeah once you get the operation, um, I'll tell you who's been, and I, I've got to give him a massive shout-out, is Robin Galloway, the DJ, because Robin's had a similar procedure and uh, it saved his career. And he gets uh, a checkup every six weeks, gets a laryngoscopy, mm -hmm. and he's been so supportive and helpful and encouraging. And he's really put my mind at rest. And so many other kind people have reached out and said, don't worry, you'll get it back. Because yeah. I was panicking, thinking, you know, I'm going to have to go back to journalism or, you know, find another career because everything I do now revolves around talking a lot. So, yeah, yeah I need to get in, get the operation. But the, the encouraging thing is, um, I heard the other day that Sunday brunch, Tim Lovejoy and Simon Rimmer. Simon Rimmer recently had the operation and he was back within a week. So, right, okay. you know, I was told four to six weeks recovery. And that might be sensible to do a proper recuperation. So I'm, I'm back to full health when I get back on air. But mm -hmm. look, I, I'm just going to be so well behaved now, Sean. I think my um, my days of uh, going out for three days on the bounce and uh, right, hey, come on, let's not be too hasty here. Singing <laughs> <laughs> like sunshine only seventy times before bed. I mean, I was people keep Aye. sending me videos of me singing sunshine only, saying 
do you think this has anything to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know, it's easy for me to say, uh, and it's easy for anybody else to say when it's not them that's going through it, but when it is over, you will be back to fitness. That Obviously, as you're saying, the medical um, developments and, and the sort of developments in therapy and what's available will ensure that. But when it does come back around, you'll be so grateful i'm not saying you're not but you, you'll take it even less for granted um it's something that will yeah. probably all take off the back of this coronavirus carry on so oh, that's probably something to look forward to and uh, yeah, i mean my, my, yeah. i was just going to say you know my old man my old man's a 66 year old gp right and well you know we've always been you know he's obviously my hero but you just consider you know a guy at his age who's just recovered from whooping cough to go back mm-hmm. on the front line and, and see patients they, they are incredible people aren't they Absolutely. Um, everybody, people working for the NHS, nurses, doctors, porters, support staff, like it's it's unbelievably selfless. So if uh, I was actually saying last night that, <clears throat> and, and no offence to anybody because I probably include myself in this, but it shows you how many pointless jobs there are, jobs that mean absolutely fuck all compared yeah. to how many jobs that are undervalued that are the real the real jobs because I was saying if your job cannot possibly stop in the middle of this then you're vital and you, you should stop you shouldn't be undervalued you shouldn't be underpaid I don't want to go down the route of give soldiers footballers wages sort of chat but you know there, there, uh, there has to be some serious change um, in, in how doctors nurses and all these people are are valued and respected in society because if it wasn't for them, imagine the nick we would be in. Not even not the sure. skills that they've got, but the their willingness to go and do it because they're within their rights to say, nah, I don't want to put myself in, in that front line. So we absolutely love you all so much. Thank you. Yeah, here's one, Sean, that I did that not, not that long ago. There was an NHS Millions campaign and I was thinking about it and how to write something meaningful that wasn't trite or you know, missing mm. the mark and how grateful I was. But I tell you how I, I actually put a, a value to it. I thought, how much would it cost for all the stuff that I've had from the NHS in my life? And when you put a figure on it, it is frightening. You know, I've had an operation on my ankle that was probably worth about £10,000 in terms of the expertise mm. from the surgeons and the the uh, theatre staff that operated on me. It was incredible. 10 days in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. How much would that cost? Then I was thinking how many times I've broken bones, how many x-rays I've had, how many times, you know, we've had two babies, the mm. amazing, amazing care that we had at the hands of the NHS to bring two children into the world. I mean, I, I will never in my lifetime repay the debt on a very basic financial level for the, the money that I've had in exchange, you know. And also, when you think about it, my dad was obviously the, the breadwinner in our house and my entire childhood was supported by the NHS, if you think about it like that as well. So... There's a debt of gratitude that I owe. So aye, it's it's not not missed in my house. I think as well, we haven't we've never, I don't think, global society, but let's just speak even just about the UK. UK society's never seen a, an event or a time period or or a scenario where we've all been in complete unison and needing to be all pulling in the same direction. And what I'm hoping from, although as horrendous as it is, and I'm not for any second overlooking the, the deaths and the the heartache that it's causing but if we are to try and clutch at straws in terms of positives I would hope it is then going to be a consciousness awakening of how the NHS potentially is under threat and how we have to completely unite in, in, in the same vein uh, 
I hope people will start to realise or or become aware of how we the people are the the ones who hold all the power in society, which we've seen over the last few few weeks or over the last month with the influence that we've been able to have over the government. And if we combine those two things, basically what I'm trying to say is the NHS has to be protected at, at all costs. And I feel a lot more um optimistic about about the prospect of that and you know in, in later recent events. So that's but I mean that, that goes without saying any, any sane non-sociopathic person would obviously hope for the protection of the, the health service. Yeah, well said Sean. I mean here's here's something to consider as well, you know. I think we've maybe touched on it before, but I do a little bit of crisis management and I work with these really great guys in Edinburgh. One of them is a massive Celtic man. Malcolm Robertson, who you probably know, his dad's George Robertson, Lord Robertson, a NATO former right, Labour okay. politician, you know, I, I think a great man. And Malcolm said something really interesting to me the other day. He said, you know, normally in a crisis, there comes a point where you can put your phone down, close your laptop or close the door at your house and be surrounded by some people you love and trust and can forget about things to a certain degree. For the first time, this feels like a situation where it's very hard to switch off. And I've found that mm-hmm. sleeping sleeping has been the sanctuary for me at the moment. I've had some great, great kips. And the minute you wake up, you just think it's immediately back on, isn't it? Straight back on. The last thing I think about before I go to bed is this. And it's just so present all the time. And that has a real effect on people. And I think we all need to be aware of that. You know, if people are listening and finding it hard, I can assure you that there are incredibly capable, incredibly successful incredibly wise, bright people who feel exactly the same. It is massively overwhelming. It's not just you. You know, we're all in the same boat on this one. That, that was definitely something I wanted to get across. It isn't just you, because um, it is easy to think that when you're trapped in your own head, especially if you're trapped in your own house, you really are almost left alone with your thoughts. It's normal to have ups and downs. I mean, I, I'll be happy to admit, I, I'm always happy to admit when I have ups and downs. I've had periods of complete optimism and feeling great, and I've had other periods where I've been so flat, and I'm like, I don't know if life will ever get back to normal. Then I start doubting myself and my own wee bubble. It will pass, and as you say, we're all in this same boat together. Um, so it is completely normal to feel that way. On a sort of lighter note, like, I suppose in, in the sense of for yourself and how you view the world and approach life, but also in a, in a more societal level, what do you hope to see when things are over and we, we kind of do get back out and we've got a chance to, to start afresh? It's an excellent question, Sean, and that's why you're in the Radio Times Top 22 podcast, my man. It's, um, <laughs> it's a great point. You know, I think for me, and I can only talk about the things that I've had time to consider and properly think about, is certain things I've taken for granted, right? Like really simple things like putting the bins out, going to the supermarket at the drop of a hat, mm. being able to go for a pint. Really simple stuff. You know, I, I think I've maybe not been quite as grateful to frontline workers as I could have been. You know, I just expect my bins to be picked up every week. And now I realise, you know, these guys are essential to keeping the country moving, aren't they? You know, and uh, also, you know, putting themselves into a difficult position when, you know, they've got families to go home to that, you know, they want to protect. It's, um, I think it's just an acknowledgement of the people that play a very silent role in our lives, but are so important, Mm -hmm. you know, supermarket workers, I mean, God, how grateful we are for I know. the shelves being completely stocked up on a day-to-day basis at the moment. 
I mean, it's something I would never have given a second thought to. But yeah, I think I might just say a wee thank you here and there every time I go to the supermarket now. Um, I think generally just a bit more of a togetherness in society. You know, I think we've always been people that like to interact socially, like we are extroverts, so we will talk to folk. Mm-hmm. But it will definitely make me um, better at going that extra yard to, to say thank you to people for uh, just get taking care of us, you know? I I completely agree and it's funny if you were to take away I suppose you do realise if they ever have strikes not that I remember one happening recently but even if the refuse collection stops then the whole world stops because you know it just has such a knock-on effect so I I'd definitely be a lot more grateful for me as well we things as you say being able to go and see family I spend a lot I mean I, I talk about this all the time I spend a lot of time with my grandpa this is the longest I've gone without seeing him for so long and uh, if he's listening, he has annoyed me a wee bit because he wasn't taking it seriously to begin with, but he is now. And uh, so I think to begin with, he was just like, oh, no, I'll see you next week. And I'm saying, no, you won't. Like, we, we can't go for a, a like, bi-weekly yeah. lunch or we, we can't be going for coffee or anything. So that I'll, I'll not take that for granted. We were due to be in Malaga. Um, so that'll be the first thing that we do is get get something booked to go away. We did yeah. Lisbon together in November. Um, and, and the big things as well, like I I'm lucky enough to be to travel a lot and to have that taken away, to not be able to go anywhere. Can I go back to Barcelona? Can I come down to London, run right with you, or go and carry on with Ferrigan? Uh, run about <laughs> Soho. <laughs> I think I've mentioned that. That is good for you, my man. <laughs> I know, I know. By the way, so me, Lindsay and I are gonna be recording a podcast. I'm not even gonna I'll tell you what, I'm not even gonna say what the subject is, but can you confirm <laughs> that it's gonna it's gonna be one to tune into? It's gonna be the diaries of ah uh, something. It, it could be the one that closes the doors on the Blethered podcast for good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's oh, if man. we include in any names or identifying features, but it will be uh, we'll be guaranteeing the anonymity of any third parties that, that were involved. What um, a life she has led. I know, but I, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to going back to normal and um, if when when we do get there. And I hope that there is a, a, a widespread um, shift in consciousness, just even the way in the things that we value, maybe move away away from from materialism or the obsession with celebrity, which I suppose takes me quite nicely on to, to the next topic of celebrity, something that's um, it's, it's perceived very differently across various aspects of society. But a question I kind of wanted to put to you, and I'm going to kind of contradict myself a wee bit here, because I'm going to ask you to to denounce it, or I'm going to see if you denounce it. I'm not going to ask you to. But then I'm going to go into asking you for some celebrity anecdotes. So that's the kind of hypocrite that I am. But what I wanted to say yeah. was people see celebrity and entertainment as it's aspirational and, and something it is something that connects with people on this visceral level, even though there is a very common association of it being shallow, exclusive, a bit pointless, frivolous, as we're kind of seeing in the, the way that things are just now. You know, it's paling into insignificance. What is your thoughts, obviously, as somebody who's been at the epicenter of that for so many years? How do you honestly view the the whole culture of celebrity? And I would like to also make the point or the caveat that you can think something doesn't have much intrinsic value, but still value it, if that makes sense. Oh, that's a, again, another good question, Sean, because I've had quite a lot of time to think about it. Um, and it's something that I probably would at some point like to write a book about. I think it, 
my relationship with it has been slightly unusual from, mm. you know, when I, when I was growing up, right, I'm a 40-year-old man, turned 40, what, two weeks ago. And when I was growing up, I was obsessed with sportsmen and I admired them mm. because they were great at a particular discipline. So, for instance, Daley Thompson was probably the first celebrity that I was really aware of around 1984 at the Los Angeles Olympics. Because mm-hmm. I just remember thinking he was a superhero. Like, who is this incredible athlete that comes from the same place as me that can run faster, jump higher, throw something further? And he was just an incredibly charismatic human being. And I remember asking my mum why I wasn't brown like Daley Thompson. And uh, <laughs> we used to do the mini Olympics in the back garden in that summer in 1984. And it was my earliest memories. But from that point on, I always had a relationship with what, I look back now as celebrity because I admired that heroism, that superhuman ability, that world-leading talent. So it moved on to football, obviously, from there. So mm-hmm. the Kenny Dalgleish era, Gordon Strachan at the Mexico World Cup in 86, then the World Cup in 1990. I was really into swimming, weirdly, when I was a kid as well. So when Adrian Moorhouse won an Olympic gold medal for the breaststroke, that was a big thing to see a British guy doing incredibly well. So it was always about sport. And then you reach an age, I had an older brother who's two and a half years older than me, Graham. And Graham was really into music. And then suddenly, when we were, well, I would have been about 11 or 12, he was really into music. And Britpop happened. So this would have been, what, 93, 94. Suddenly started to become totally obsessed with music. Oasis, he was into the Beastie Boys, all sorts of great music. And that kind of led me to the Beatles, and there was an amazing documentary in the 90s called The Beatles Anthology, and it just explained their story. And that kind of introduced me to the culture of fame, really, because the Beatles were brilliant musicians, but they were the first proper global mm. superstars. And I just became totally obsessed with what had happened to them. And then that led me to a big interest in seeing live music and just being totally overwhelmed and obsessed with these amazing mythological, (laughs) mysterious characters like Freddie Mercury or Liam Gallagher or Elton John or Roger Daltrey, Mm -hmm. Mick Jagger, these incredible characters. And I always thought growing up in a small town, reading the NME and Select and Q magazine and things that my brother was getting, that I wanted to go and see what that was like close up. So I I followed it because I loved the music and the talent and and just the, the amazing fanfare around these incredibly talented people. But then I found myself in journalism and then specialising in celebrity journalism. And that all happened around 2003, 2004, where reality television, Big Brother, Celebrity Big Brother, Fame Academy, Pop Idol, X Factor, that became a huge cultural phenomenon. And at the first, at the beginning of it, it was really interesting as sort of a cultural, social thing to be part of reporting this new thing but then it became pretty clear that people were becoming famous for fame's sake with no talent Mm. with no actual skill and i look back on that and think isn't it weird that we became obsessed or promoted these guys who were famous for absolutely no reason other than the virtue of the fact that they appeared on a tv show 24 hours around the clock and that, that, looking back and that, that feels odd. But again, it was a big cultural phenomenon at the time. And look, it mm-hmm. did uncover some huge talent as well. You know, people did win X Factor. They've gone on and had great careers. You know, there have been a few characters from um, from reality telly that have gone on and done pretty well for themselves. 
But at the same time, you know, running concurrently, you had amazing recording artists developing like Amy Winehouse, like Arctic Monkeys, Adele, Kasabian, all of these great bands. So, you know, there was also still the the talent as I had grown up with that I still <laughs> idolised, worshipped and respected and loved to meet. Now, where the, the lines became blurred for me were, was when I got to know a lot of these guys and some became, hopefully, people will be lifelong friends. But then you realise we're all exactly the same. And the notion of fame is quite an ugly thing, really. You know, it's mm. people are rewarded and become very wealthy because they are particularly good at a discipline. But they are also flawed human beings, like the rest of us. And mm. when you amplify flawed human beings, those weaknesses or strengths in their character become a lot bigger and a lot wilder than they would be in, in normal circumstances. So that be can become quite an odd thing to be around or be a part of or to write about. And, you know, we didn't really get into it in too much detail last time, but, you know, I've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about my role at the Sun newspaper and what that was all about. There are a lot of positives, but there are also loads of negatives that, you know, I still have to live with and I'm not comfortable with. But in the particular conversation we're having about fame right now, you know, it's an ugly mistress and I don't think it's very good for a lot of people. Some people cope with it beautifully and handle it. But ultimately, I think everybody, regardless of their level of success, fame or talent, it doesn't always make people happy. It's like money as well. I think people mm. can conflate money, fame and success. Like money doesn't make anybody happy. I mean, it can make life easier, but I think it brings a lot of problems with it. And I think fame and success and money all kind of sit together. But, you know, what I've found hard is, I don't know, it's, I'm still quite troubled by the relationships because you're always trying to work out if they're genuine. You know, are, are people mm. truly friends with me because I'm Gordon Smart and a person they like? Or were they friendly with me because... I had a position of power that could help protect them or promote them or, you know, play some role in their profession. Mm. And it was a real barometer for me when I left the showbiz gig to see who remained friends with me, because I tell you what, a lot of people just evaporated from my life. Um, and then what's weirder is you become an editor and then you become even more paranoid about, is it because I can protect them? Mm. And then you become right. a tier three radio DJ, you know, and you're like, <laughs> some folk don't answer the phone to you like they used to. Um, you don't get invited to the same things. But then on the other hand, a level of trust has, has developed for me because I am no longer a geezer from the sun. Or to use the correct terminology, the cunt from the sun. <laughs> you can beat that. <laughs> no, sorry no, that's Sean, <laughs> Sorry to Sean's granny, it's appalling. But, you know, I, 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 and I, listen, it's, it's something I, I have to deal with. And look, not for a second am I looking for sympathy, right? But... You know I talk about it quite a lot because I am carrying a lot of baggage about being that dick from the sun. I think I'm a certain type of person. But look, the weird thing is that because of that position, I've ended up having a really unusual level of fame, right, where I would never consider myself to be a celebrity, but I think I was probably quite a well-known journalist in the biggest selling paper in the mm. country. The radio stuff, the telly stuff that I did, always quite high profile, but I still don't consider myself and in a weird way I don't feel like talent to use that horrible word but mm. you know I've got a bit of a following on social media and you know I've got a little bit of profile from the radio <clears throat> and then um, what I love about it is the chance to be passionate about things I love or shine a light on things that I think are excellent like your podcast for example you know 
the, the fact that I've been able to play a part in maybe taking you to a bigger audience, that I get a massive buzz to see you doing so well, mate, you know? And uh, that, that's where it's good for me when it's used as a force for good. And, you know, looking back at the sun, one of the things I would always say in my defence, you know, people only talk about the shitey stories on the front page that caused upset and were quite salacious. But a lot of folk forget about the features about books and films and bands or shining a light on people with uh, who I think deserved a real leg up because they were incredible talent. For me, that's really appreciated, and it's, there's been so many people. I think people often don't realise that you're one of the first people to have Lewis Capaldi on mainstream radio. Same goes for Jerry Cinnamon, Sam Fender. There's so many others that I could talk about, and I think that having seen it firsthand and secondhand, the the level of affection or respect that a lot of big names and or quote unquote big names in the industry would give you speaks volumes, and it isn't me kissing your ass because I would say this either off air or on air so this isn't there for the, the benefit of any others um, so I think that speaks for itself, I, I, I've obviously heard you talking as well about people that, that were uh, invited to their wedding their first wedding but then <laughs> got married got married again and the invite was nowhere to be seen once you went to the sun but I suppose as much as that must, that would bother me um, to a degree but then again I'd think well do you know what it's good because it does shake off the pretenders and it does shake off the people who, who aren't really true pals or who don't have your, your best interests at heart um, yes. one thing you, you're kind of saying about the earlier about the, the difference between fascination with fame and characters and the stories that go with that and th- then which on the other side would be wrongly deifying these people um, as being you know flawless perfect human beings or or, or worthy of praise or adoration or admiration or friendship or whatever just because they happen to be well known and you obviously fall into the the former category with just having that fascination so and as you said they're just human beings so do you think that helped you first of all to get the job done but also to cultivate these relationships in the past because you do obviously see people as quite rightly as just being on a level playing field does that is that respect then reciprocated has that helped you through your career Definitely, Sean, and it's something we've discussed before. I think being Scottish and where we grew up played a massive part in it because, I mean, I always refer to it as the waiter test. You know, I I used to kind of watch how people behave towards waiting staff when I was Mm. doing my job at the paper because I think it can be quite a revealing thing about people's behaviour. If people are polite and friendly to waiters... I, I always think that's a kind of measure of how you treat everybody in your life. And if folk mm. are kind of arrogant or rude or dismissive, I think there's a good chance you're like that to everybody. And that's not a good sign. And I think being Scottish, I'm so fortunate to have grown up with a great you know, family. My parents are, uh, have been uh, just wonderful. I'm so lucky, Sean. I've said it to you before. But you know, if they saw for a second that I was above my station, they would bring me crashing down to earth. And Kate, who mm. you've not a proper chance to spend any time with you, but a lot will make sense when you meet her. And <laughs> with um, a famous dad and a mum who was very well known as well. You know, she's had a really interesting relationship with fame. So, you know, being being Scottish, where I come from, I've always just been really interested in people. And the mm. fact that they have become celebrated or celebrities, it's kind of just by the by. I mean, what I like is finding people in, or meeting interesting people. Um you know, if I could have made a living interviewing characters like you do on Pleathered, regardless of their background, I'd have been just as happy. And I think it where I get enjoyment and a thrill from it is 
introducing people to a new audience. That is, I think, where the enjoyment mm-hmm. comes from. And if you have the chance and the power to say, do you know what? I met this person. You might have heard this said about them before, but I actually found them like this. So, for mm-hmm. instance, I think a lot of people have an opinion of Gary Lineker, and I had a preconceived idea about him from tabloid stories I'd heard. And I got on great with Gary, and I still speak to him, and he's always made time for me. And I realise that he can rub mm-hmm. people up the wrong way, but you know yourself, you can only base your opinions on people based on the exper- experiences you've had with them yourself. And, you know, I've, I think I've met a lot of people in my life. I think I'm a good judge of character. And uh, mm. I think it's always good to kind of share that with a little bit of authority. So if I have any kind of qualification, I think it's being a reasonable judge of character. And as we would say in Scotland, uh, good cunt, good cunt, wank, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In terms of uh, people who you have then obviously met through working industry-wise, who are the people that, I mean, I, I think <clears throat> I've got a good idea, but for listeners anyway, who would be the people that you've met, that you've become friends with, that have stuck around, that have shown that real that real value in your life that you want to, you know, ha- keep around for a, a good while longer? Who would they be? Yeah. It's amazing when the chips are down. I think that's always a good sign. You know, I wrote uh, Vinnie Jones' first book is... Uh, been emotional yep. it was called seven years ago and Vinny's one of those blokes that is uh, has a reputation for being a hard man you know probably a bit of a right wing you know Tory working class hard man Aye. made good and it's just not the true Vinny from my experiences you know Vinny is always the first person to look out for me when the wheels fall off you know so sent me a wee message mm-hmm. when my voice was wonky always remembers your birthday Things like that. And he's always the first person. If anybody goes to Los Angeles, I'll always say, Vinny, would you mind looking out for so-and-so? And And he always does it. So he's good. And I'll always remember for that. You know, there's a guy we talk about, Martin Geisler. I mean, the story with Martin Geisler is fascinating. I went on work experience in probably 2000 to Scotland today. And I very nearly went to work there full time when I graduated from university. And I remember Martin Geisler taking me to the pub one lunchtime. And he was like this huge personality. He'd just come from come back from the World Cup in 1998 where he was, I remember him doing a brilliant job as a journalist uh, covering that. In fact, he was in the pub the night that Stan Collymore raised his hands to Ulrika Johnson. He was actually there when that happened. What the hell? But he went on to be Africa correspondent, Iraq correspondent for ITN, a brilliant journalist, a guy I really look up to. And he took me on the piss one lunchtime uh, when I was doing work experience in 2000 at Scotland Today. And I came back leathered, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> Scotland Today shared an office with a Herald. So I'd work with Scotland Today in the morning and then work for the Herald in the afternoon. And I had this terrifying boss. Um, I think her name was Helen Lennox at the Herald. And she said, have you got any ideas then, Gordon, when I came back from the pub? <laughs> and I was like, I had, the, I had what Chris McQueer calls the three-pint glow. And uh, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'll tell you, Helen, I've got an idea. <laughs> and I was like, like this 20-year-old, overconfident shite bag. And I was like, sitting there, I, had the cigar, I had the cigar going, let me tell you a thing or two, Helen, about the old journalism. <laughs> this is three pints for Geisler. And uh, I said, uh, I see there's a festival coming up, a jazz celebration of Jap- uh, Japan. Why don't we do uh, a feature exploring how the Japanese have played such a big part in the history of Edinburgh. 
And she said, well, that's fantastic, Gordon. I don't know if you know, but there's a new uh, ambassador to Japan who's just started in Edinburgh. Why don't you go and interview him for the Herald? And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. No problem at all. <laughs> so the next thing, I'm in the Japanese consulate in uh, Edinburgh. So out of my depth and pissed. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> suddenly realised I didn't have a clue what I was doing, right? And there was a uh, an amazing girl who worked there who probably spoke six languages and she was there to translate for my interview with the new ambassador to Scotland. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I get invited into this room and they've got flags out and there's a ceremonial address. <laughs> big interview with the Herald. And he walks in and the, the, the three-pint glow is wearing off and I'm shiting it because I don't know what I'm doing. And my shorthand's <laughs> not good enough. I didn't know how to work my tape recorder. And I remember so distinctly my first question. <laughs> it's so embarrassing, but I don't mind sharing it. My first question was, so um, it's a real pleasure to meet you, sir. <laughs> Will there be any sumo wrestling as part <laughs> of the celebration of Japan? <laughs> did they, uh, what did they say? And the... Bear in mind, this is through a translator because it's his first day in the job. He's got a pissed twenty-year-old Hibs fan sitting in front of him, <laughs> sweating. And the girl, the girl doing the translating, who's about probably twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and I could see her rolling in her eyes, but internally pissing herself because she could tell I was so out of my depth. <laughs> and um, she's translated the question, and he's looked at me like a fucking idiot, like I am, and given me this. <laughs> answer that I deserved and anyway I, I rang Martin Geisler when I got out and uh, he saved the day by um, giving me supplementary questions that I could go back and I'll never forget Martin Geisler really looked out for me now that was in 2000 you take me forward to 2013 and I'm the editor of the Scottish Sun and I want a new columnist and I ring Martin Geisler and say, I would like Scottish eyes on the world, somebody with a bit of gravitas. You've lived in every major continent. You've reported on every major continent. You love football. You love music. You love culture. You know politics. You have been great to me over the last 13 years. Do you want a job? So it just goes to show, imagine he'd been a total dick, eh? Imagine he had humiliated me, showed me up. And it just goes to show, like, I always remember this through my time at the paper, See, when you get work experience guys in or people who are students or desperate to learn the trade or want to borrow a little bit of your wisdom or learn from you, I always give them so much of my time because ultimately one day they will be my boss or in a position to rescue me when uh, I need That's a job. It. What do we always say? You reap what you sow and whether it takes a year or 13, it's always going to come back to you in one way or another. So choose to seed positive uh, or sow positive seeds, should I say. Um, oh, yeah, I should have answered your question more fully, actually, Sean. Sorry, you, you asked for some names right. of people who are good. And, you know, like you say, like in Scotland, Geisler's one. Robin Galloway, the DJ, a fantastic human being, always looks out for other people. Um, in London, in terms of the showbiz stuff, Noel Gallagher, again, has, has been loyal to me. Uh, I don't see him as much as I used to, but I know, you know, he, he's a generous soul and he's, he's had a bit of a kick in in the last couple of years. And I don't think it's entirely fair because, again, he's a generous man that mm. does so much stuff and doesn't ask for any thanks. But tell you what, when I left the Sun, mm. he was the one who arranged the leaving party and took me for dinner and uh, said all the best for the future. But, you know, he, you know, he's an example. 
and again, there's there's people that uh, you wouldn't expect that that can every now and again that do you a good turn, like Peter Crouch, good guy, Charlie Adam, Darren Fletcher. Yeah. Um, a lot of footballers have been good. David Beckham, if we ask him something, he'll always do you a turn, you know, and mm. that, that says a lot about the man. Tell you the one that, that really makes me laugh is um, for three years at the Scottish Sunshine, I was really quite heavily involved in politics. And it's amazing. They Of all the people, you know, they're the guys who evaporated when I left the Scottish Sun. You know, were so mm-hmm. heavily involved with each other during that referendum across all parties. Uh, and I tell you, Nicola Sturgeon still says hello, still keeps in touch. Um, Alistair Darling, weirdly, every time I see him at the airport, remembers exactly who I am. Gordon Brown, every single time. Hello, son. How are you? How is life? How's the radio? So, mm-hmm. you know, that's interesting. Fascinating. I saw Gordon Brown speaking uh, at an event for a charity event back in 2012, and I was absolutely blown away by how powerful a speaker he was in terms of how he absolutely held the room. I, I wasn't a massive fan. Uh, I wasn't completely opposed to him either, but I was really impressed. Nicola Sturgeon, I met at um, Scottish Business. I want was it Scottish business? I can't even remember what it was for now. It was a, to be honest, it was a freebie. It was a great night. I was steaming. That was when I wore when I tweeted Ryland saying thanks for letting me borrow your jacket when I wore that flowery suit jacket. And he replied he replied saying, No bother, just make sure you bring it back. I met Nicola Sturgeon that night and she was uh, she was very charming as well. Um while we're on Martin Geisler, the uh, this was I think this was before I knew him, and I was in Parliament the night it was prorogued. I think this was back in September or October, I can't even remember now. And uh, I sat down with Paul Sweeney. Paul Sweeney took me into the House of Parliament and we sat in the Strangers restaurant and Theresa May was nearby sitting having dinner. That wee guy, that wee Tory guy that wears the wig, see the wig that just looks absolutely mental. He was nearby. He looks like he looks like a Boris Johnson impersonator. Yeah. <laughs> um I sat down for dinner with Paul and he just got up and just sprinted out. And I was like, what the fuck? He's just disappeared. And I'm just sitting here surrounded by the literal previous prime minister. Just thinking, oh my God, like somebody's going to tell me to get out. Just disappeared. He came back 25 minutes later and I was like, what the hell was that all about? And he says, Martin Geisler's been waiting for 20 minutes outside in the front lawn, waiting for me to, interv- to be interviewed. They've had to start the broadcast and Paul's just sprinted out. I told Martin that recently. I was like, by the way, that time Paul kept you waiting, me and him were sitting drinking red wine <laughs> in Parliament. <laughs> Yeah, he's a great guy, Martin. And um, I'll tell you, another person I should give a mention in dispatches is Martin Comston. And, uh, you know, Comston, we were good friends when his star was on the rise, but he wasn't what I would describe as a household name at that point. And he certainly is now a very famous man. And again, he is such a good human being, always going out his way for other people. Mm. And I heard a story the other day, we were mates with a comedian called Big Tom Davis. You should get on right. your Actually, Big Tom, you'll know him from Murder and Successful. He's on a league of their own, six foot ten ex scaffolder and cross dressing comedian. Yeah, he, uh, he's a great guy, and he had been on a stag do with one of his friends when they came back had a brain hemorrhage, and he said that Comston checked in with him every single day for about a month afterwards. And you know, I, I just think he's got such a good heart. He's brilliant with my kids, and uh, yeah, he's he's just one of the the good people in the, on the planet. A great man. You can't put a value in that, can you? Uh, you can't buy that kind of loyalty. It's another thing I always say. So it's good to see decent people getting it. I always think, again, you reap what you sow, and eventually people do get what they deserve. Absolutely loving the nest, by the way. Have you been watching it? Have I? I know that you were a bit critical of the first episode and some of the uh, accents. 
Well, <laughs> I see. I think the acting was great. Uh, I think overall the acting was really good. But I'm critical. Like it could be anything. My, you know, my own child could make something. And if I think the accents are off, I'm always going to just have a pop. I can't resist it. It might Absolutely. seem snidey. Yeah, it's, you're right. Just, what one thing that bothered me is so it's in the gorbals, but they keep saying it's possible. Now those two areas are probably very similar to each other. Why not just say it's the gorbals? I'm just nitpicking. <laughs> I'm just nitpicking, but that's the problem. I'm really I bet there's a good reason for it. The girl who wrote it is Glaswegian, isn't she? So uh, you never know. It's probably a reason that she's uh, a tip and a wink to a relative or something like that in her own way. But uh, it is really good. And mm. um, it's, I'm, I'm just so pleased for Martin that he has grafted his arse off since he was 16 years old, you know, and um, mm. it's always great. That's another thing, Shauna. It's mad to see, you know, there's a great Gore Vidal quote about nothing hurts more than seeing your friends doing better than you. <laughs> But um, <laughs> I, I kind of feel the opposite. You know, no, he said uh, a little bit of you dies every time your friends are successful. But he's ah, a, yeah, he, he's such a talented boy and he deserves everything that comes his way. And uh, yeah, I'll be carrying his bags around the world in about three years, no doubt. <laughs> My favourite story, and I'm just going to, for anybody that's listening to Gordon and I speaking for the first time, if you go back to the first episode that we recorded down in London, there's a great story about when Gordon let Martin Compton stay in his flat down in London in his family home to receive a call from the neighbours complaining. Uh, I'll say no more, but it was when they commented in the the lovely singing voice that one of the party goers had. <laughs> Do you remember what I'm talking about? Number one. Yeah, listen but to the first what, episode. Aye. Yeah. Aye. In, in order to get that one, that's a good story. Uh, there was something else I was going to, I was going to touch on and, I, and I've kind of forgotten now. I can't remember. That's 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 not very um that's not very good present to me. If you want. Aye. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick Compton story, right? So um when we were living together, it was around twenty twelve, the summer of the uh, Olympics in London, and we went on one of the biggest nights I, I've ever had. Uh it started with Blur in Hyde Park, I think, and it just seemed to go on for days and days and days. And it ended <laughs> with me and Martin Comston in the back of a car driving around Hampstead Heath, which sounds ropey, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> looking for George Michael's house because because <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't find him in Hampstead Heath. <laughs> <laughs> George, yeah, George Michael had this massive Olympics party, and everybody and their dog had gone. That was famous. We decided to invite ourselves to it, but neither of us knew where he lived, and uh, we were both absolutely banjoed and I was just thinking what's George Michael going to make of it when the showbiz editor of the sun turns up with this wee Scottish actor that was in Monarch <laughs> of the Glen <laughs> and I, was like, I was thinking I'm going to have to o- offer him some kind of sacrificial lamb to get in <laughs> and I was thinking about it the other day and I was thinking if only we Sean McDonald had been there at the time we could have just <laughs> plumped you off into a room and uh, had the night of our lives. But to come back out, you'd have been, you'd have had the pet shop boys in a headlock. <laughs> <Or> like arm <laughs> wrestling. <laughs> oh, mate, I'll do anything for a party. To be honest, so I'm open to negotiations. If it was George Michael, God. Um, oh, mate, this has been class. I'm not keep me too long as much as I would love to go on for hours. But um, we need to keep some for the next episode, especially when we get back in the studio. By the way, that wee oh, studio oh. setup I've got in Soho is magic, so I'll get you in there once, you're di- once we can get back to normal. Tremendous. We'll do the lockdown, out of lockdown, with Blethered in, up in my house. 
and we'll uh, open a bottle, Sean, and we'll go for a proper kick in the ball. Proper session. A bottle of copper dog whiskey, that's what we'll, we'll crack open. Good man, good man. Sean, can I ask you a little favour? Absolutely. Yeah, we've been really busy in the last month working with the government, with the UN, weirdly, and Public Health England, helping get the message across about stay in the house. Hopefully you've seen some of the content that we've created with Bob Servant, with AC12, with Compton and Vicky McClure, and with Gary Tank Commander. And we've now had something like 10 million views of the content that's been created over the last few weeks. So Brilliant. it's been a really important thing, mate, because, you know, I, it's easy for me to say because I live in a lovely house up in the hills, but it's so important that we pay attention to staying in the house because, you know, we need to keep the frontline workers safe and well, make sure the NHS is protected. And it really is so important that people listen to podcasts like Blethered, stay in, keep entertaining folk. And it's so important for you, Sean, as well, to keep providing the content so people can stay sane while they're in the house because it is such an important thing. It sounds daft and I know it's been hammered so much, but, you know, there are a lot of folk who aren't listening to the message and, you know, speaking to somebody who's got friends who have now suffered with coronavirus and somebody mm-hmm. who's got a dad on the front line, please do just stay in the house, pay attention and, and listen to the advice. As much as we don't listen to politicians, we really do need to listen to the experts right now. I completely agree, and all I can do is is echo that sentiment. We've all got a small part to play. JFK, what was it he said? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. All you need to do for your country is stay in your house. And if you stay in, the the, the sooner you stay in and the sooner that everybody obviously knuckles down with this message, the sooner we can get back to normal life just in time for summer. And that means rooftops, AF in Barcelona. You know the score. I'm, not, I'm so chuffed you mentioned that. I, I listen, every time I listen to an episode, I just wait for the moment. So when I was in Barcelona, you know, on the rooftops, I love it, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All the podcasts, rooftops off. Rooftops off in Barcelona, even when it's raining, even when it's winter. I'm, 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 I'm nothing if not committed and consistent. Sean, one day, one day, I really hope you and I will go to Barcelona together and we can be on a rooftop with a drink and it will feel like a beautiful way to end all of these great conversations you have. Just You should do a party. You should do the Blethered Podcast Barcelona rooftop party. It would be sensational. Mate, we'll make it happen. But I need you to promise me one thing. What's that? That, that you'll post my bail when I definitely get arrested. <laughs> what do you mean? I'll be in there with you. <laughs> well, I, well, I can take that as long as I've got somebody to keep me company because it's boring. The last time I get jailed in Barcelona, I couldn't speak Spanish as well, so it was a bit boring. But oh, I could work it, and this is a true story, uh, which I talk about in, in a few of the podcasts. I was I, get, I spent tw- a night in a police cell in Barcelona after a night out in Pasha, and uh, let's just say it was a, just a wee bit of confusion, a misunderstanding. We'll, <laughs> we'll call it that. But the only thing I could understand was the guy. So you get put in a cell with two other people. And it's like in a, you know, in a cartoon when there's actual bars in, in all the cells and you can see in it, you can talk to everybody else that's in. And the only thing I could kind of make out, because I'd only been there a few months at this point, was uh, the guy saying, I will hurt you if you don't give me your bread. And I was like, oh, fucking hell, I'm not that hungry anyway, mate. Yeah, you can have it. <laughs> that is amazing. And, that you know, amazing. he wasn't kidding on. His eyes were absolutely popping out his head. I was like, no, no, that's fine, mate, you have it. They came Sean, by when they were offering the bread. As a helpful public service, I think you should tell us what that is in Spanish because I think that could be quite helpful to a lot of Scottish people in Spain over the years. 
Aye, what was it? So he say, si no me das tu pan, si no me das tu pan, if you don't give me your bread, te mateo, or is it te mateo? I'll kill you. I was like, oh fuck, <laughs> right, okay, hear me. <laughs> Do you want me to ask, get you some butter as well? Just please don't hurt me. That was, uh, that's a full podcast in itself. That was an experience. Um, not one that I would wish I would wish to repeat. So just make sure you're a fast runner. Although, see if the police are chasing us. I don't need to outrun the police. I just need to outrun you. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, I've got some great stories about that as well. Uh, Dark Lehman, who played for Hibs in about 1998, 99. There's a great story about outrunning the police in Edinburgh when he did something wrong. So I'll share that one with you. Or the time there was a silly misunderstanding with the German police when I was in Cologne. I'll tell you that story another time. <laughs> Right, I'm writing these down and I'll be asking for I'll be asking them next time we're out. Well mate, keep the heat, we'll keep in touch and thanks again for for giving me so much of your time. No bother. Anytime Sean. You can phone me anytime, night or day. I just might not answer. Cheers, <laughs> <laughs> right. We take all kind of pills to give us all kind of thrills, but the thrill we never know. It's the thrill that'll get you when you get your picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Wanna see my picture on the cover? Rolling Stone. Wanna buy five copies for my mother? Yeah. Wanna see my smiling face on the cover of the Rolling Stone? That's a very, very good idea. <laughs> I got a freaky old lady named a cocaine kitty who embroidered. On my jeans, I got my pull.